men outlived the dinosaurs. And vinyl outlived the iPod. Chew on that while we flip on over to the B-side. This is Vinyl Community Podcasts. All right, buddies, welcome back. Vinyl Community Podcast coming at you. We're doing another edition, back by popular or unpopular demand, you decide, <laughs> of what we're calling the KISS Roundtable number two. And if you uh, heard our first version of this, uh, this is the last year KISS is actively touring, and we kind of talked about that in the last show. Uh, we do, yeah, we've got uh, some, some folks wearing the gear here. Um, but just want to kind of talk about the band I, I said in our original episode. I'm going to my first KISS show this year. I know that makes me nice. kind of a mark. But um, in my process of wanting to like learn more about the band, I kind of leaned out to some folks in the vinyl community who I knew or historians in their own right. And uh, we're joined by another one today. We'll get into that in a second. But anyway, just to kind of learn more about the band, talk about the band, get some insights about, you know, it, it would take me hours weeks months etc to, to kind of get even anywhere close to the subject matter expertise of our guests so i'm being kind of lazy to be honest with you and i'm just going to pick their brains but uh joining me concert buddy for this rendition is a couple of returning faces and a new person too we'll start with our new friend if you've watched any of the, the patrick vinyl archivist live stream i'm sure you've seen mark uh i know you have a, your band project gemini right correct thanks for joining us mark Thank you very much for having me on here. I'm looking forward to this. Happy to. And, and I, I, full disclosure, Mark is a professional at this KISS podcast stuff. Uh, your, your podcast is called, tell us. The KISS FAQ podcast. So so I'm, I'm going to try to do my best not to make us look too sad in comparison to a full-fledged KISS podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then we've got uh, Dylan, the record spinner, joining us again back back for a round numero dos. Dylan, how you doing? I am doing fantastic. Awesome. Thanks for joining us again, sir. And then one of the most surprising turn of events in the history of the final community is our resident jazz bum, Felipe, is secretly into the metal and the rock. And oh, yeah. if you would have heard, he was tell- he was spilling some real tea on some stories right before we got <laughs> online. So, Felipe, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, uh, Chance. Thanks, every, every, everyone, for joining. It's, it's going to be a blast. I mean, who oh, yeah. doesn't like talking kids, right? So, well, listen, just, listen, Fel- Felipe, Felipe and I were already trading messages before we went live here. And Felipe, in full rock and roll mode, has already been hitting the sauce. He's already been hitting some brief <laughs> uh, so, so, so this is going to be uh, like that famous performance, Kiss Unplugged. This is probably going to be Felipe Unplugged. So I'm looking forward to seeing oh, yeah. what no, we get out of Fully plugged. Let's see. <laughs> <laughs> Good stuff. Well, well, guys, uh, you know, Felipe, full credit again, kind of came up with this topic we'll do for this presentation, and that's mm-hmm. kind of talking about the the wins, the losses, the merits, and everything in between of really, mm-hmm. I guess, two principal eras, and and obviously. They started with the makeup and then they took the makeup off and then they came back to the makeup and the lineup changes and all that stuff. But to make it a very simple kind of conversation, we're just calling it the the, the masked or unmasked eras. And want to hear your thoughts. And, and, and maybe, you know, Marco, since since you're our guest, we'll, we'll give you the floor first. 1983, if I if I've got the numbers right, was about when they made the decision to take off the kabuki makeup and, and go a different direction, at least from the visual representation of, of what they're. Dylan, Dylan, do I have the year wrong there? 
you were right on 83 and that runs up to 95. Okay. Okay. Perfect. So Mark, help help me a novice again going to my first show this year mm-hmm. what what was kind of their thought process and in, in going to such a radical direction i mean obviously you know music was changing about that time and you're writing you're getting into a lot of the for lack of a better word the hair metal bands a lot of the the you know the music videos were all looking the same there's a lot of mm-hmm. cutter element and, and kiss kind of was going in that direction in their own way. Tell, tell us about what the band was thinking at that time. Well, I mean, f- from what I understand and from what I've read and heard and, you know, all the discussions I've had over the years, this was not something that was, you know, all of a sudden just, you know, spurred on them. They, they were thinking about doing this from as far back as the elder. They wanted to get out of the makeup, you know, I mean, they did for creatures of the night, surprisingly enough, they wanted to get out of the makeup then even. Right. But the, the, a lot of people, well, Gene Simmons was the one who was very unsure about getting out of the makeup because, you know, to him, the makeup is everything to him. It's his second persona. It's mm-hmm. it's where he feels the most comfortable on stage. When he when he was afraid that when he take that off, and he has to be Gene Simmons' regular man on stage, he didn't know what to expect was going to happen. You know, would he be able to come off looking? You know, play. He was he was afraid of he, if he could play the part still. You know what I mean? That's very much his his fear in that. And you know, Paul. At that point, he he wanted off the makeup. He when he wanted to do, you know, just regular rock clothes. He wanted to get in, and I mean, you can tell right away when you watch that uh, couple of bootleg shows from like the Lick It Up tour, for example. You can tell Paul was the most comfortable. He was sitting there doing split kicks and running around the stage. He was so happy. He was in running shoes now. Free. He was free. And, yeah, no more <laughs> yeah. heavy boots oh, yeah. and you know ridiculous things that he had to wear, you know, and take off on stage. So. He was happy with that, you know, and I'm sure Eric Carr was happy to have something a bit, you know, easier to wear on stage. Same with Bruce and whoever was the guitar player, Vinny and those guys, right? Uh, but Gene was the one who was kind of like, oh, I don't know. And you can always tell with him, he was always the one who had the most problems, you could tell throughout the years. I mean, at one point, they, they were calling him Maud because he looked like, you know, one, one like he looked like a really bad dressed woman in, in on <laughs> asylum. You know, during yeah. those days. You know it, it was ridiculous how he looked <laughs> during those times. But, you know, they finally they finally figured it out as time went on. But but to answer your question initially, uh, you know, by 83, even Gene knew that they had to do something because for the creatures of the night, that was supposed to be their big comeback album. Right. And that was supposed to be their big comeback tour in the United States. They booked originally 100 shows in the United States to play. And that tour completely tanked on them. Like they had to Mm -hmm. cut it short. And, you know, they were were booking 10,000 seat arenas and having 2,000 people show up. I mean, Paul Stanley said that the saddest thing is when you go on stage and you throw your pick in the air and it goes over the audience and lands on the floor because there's so little people there, you know. Mm -hmm. So, you know they knew they had to make a change to, to, to save the band and, and it worked for them. It, it did, you know, it became a platinum record for them, you know, to lick it up mm-hmm. and the tour did increase drastically in numbers. And then even more so with the next album after that animalize. Mm-hmm. So interesting point there. Cause I know that, you know, kiss is kind of 
tweaked their sound over the years. And, you know, late 70s, there was, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, guys, I don't want to speak out of school here, but, you know, there was some music they put in late 70s that had some disco flavor, yeah. more dance, more poppy. Um, oh, yeah. you know, again, when I think of the unmasking starting in 83 at Look It Up, like you said, mm-hmm. you know, I'm thinking of they're embracing the spandex and the, and the pyro and the, you know, the, the, that formula that was really starting to kind of emerge mm-hmm. as like safe and that, and that, not in a bad way, but commercially speaking, like you're talking about Mark is that, you know, to come off of a tour that was very low below expectations to, te- mm-hmm. you know, it, it, to change your brand identity for a band that was already kind of changing a little bit of their sound over the years, um, Dylan, do you kind of see it that way too? That you know they were not not necessarily chasing trends, but just adapting their their playbook to uh, being more contemporary, being you know more commercial. Because obviously, you know, if if anything, Gene has demonstrated, and the band's demonstrated that you know the money is important. It's not everything, but it is it is definitely an important part of the sauce. Do you see so, it that way too? So I think they had a solid foundation going when Lick It Up and Animalize did as well as they did. Mm. But then when you go on to Asylum and you look at the image that they were going for, it was all about chasing trends. And glam metal was the hot flavor. So, of course, you look at the outfits. It's neon. It's flashy. It's appalling. And then you go to Crazy Nights. They work with Ron Nevison, who had just come off the heels of working on number one hits with Heart. So, Kiss goes pop a little bit. So, like, it kind of like that n- mid to late 80s period is kind of like the wilderness years, at, at least mm-hmm. in my eyes, where they were just kind of adapting to what was going on in the music scene mm-hmm. putting it in the kiss mold and seeing if that would bring on good fortunes and you know come what 1989 going into 90 hot in the shade tour i mean i, I won't even talk about the album hot in the shade i have plenty of <laughs> nice things to say but the tour they start digging back into the past and they start representing the 70s material and once revenge came in i think outside of lick it up that was the most comfortable they felt out of yes. makeup because you know th- it was black leather more street clothes driven it they they just looked comfortable and then you know that was i think that to be honest that was the peak of the non-makeup period because then you go into the conventions and then mm-hmm. reunion period afterwards it's a domino effect essentially. It, it's in, it's interesting yeah. that you say that though because while they they did appear to have their look down pat by revenge yes. it is unfortunate though that by that point people were already checking out again with kiss i mean mm-hmm. th- th- yeah. that revenge that revenge yeah. tour again had to be cut short because the attendance was brutal and but then again timeline is is um, a thing to think about as well you're talking about 91 92 you know they're starting to get the wrinkles and the crinkles of grunge creaking mm-hmm. in here now yep. so people are kind of like uh kiss i'm glad they didn't start wearing flannels that would have been a little bit too much yeah exactly <laughs> but they, but they did screw things up with you know doing carnival of souls that was their grunge yeah. attempt and that was brutal but was uh, but uh, you know uh, dylan's right uh for hot in the shade you know the record is is terrible. It's it's basically just demos, you know, that they did and just patched up a bit and just you know put a little bit of production sheen on it and then released it. And plus, it's way too long. It's like fifteen songs on there. Yeah, What's Kiss like on? make it a lot of songs. Yeah. So and then, but the tour was phenomenal. That tour saved them. Okay, because th- that was really well attended. But what people seem to forget, and I, but I'm sure. Do you Dylan, think it was Forever's radio exposure? 
Yeah, yeah. Forever was the thing that saved them because they delayed that yeah. tour for a long time after that record mm-hmm. came. They didn't go on tour yeah. for a long time. And then when Forever broke, then they went out on tour and then they got the numbers that they were looking for because that was mm-hmm. their first top 10 hit since Beth, that that song, you know? Yeah. So th- th- that was, it was pretty important. And that tour, if, you, if you're going to watch any tour, on, like on a bootleg on YouTube, check out the Hot in the Shade stuff. You won't be disappointed. It's good, yeah. yeah. So Felipe, kind of coming back to you, you you did birth of this topic, so probably mm-hmm. I could have started with you too, but um, obviously a different perspective, you know, obviously as, as mm-hmm. we've talked about all over the place about, you know, uh, really getting into metal and getting into rock music, you know, where you were and like, you know, Rio and so forth. Yeah. Um, is it safe to say, and correct me if I'm wrong, It was this your... Was this when you were able to start going to the shows? Was during the unmasked era, or kind of walk us through it and walk us through like early impressions of like because you, you talked mm-hmm. about this on our last show about how your introduction to the band and and that sort of thing. But yeah. did anything change as now they've taken the makeup off in your mind? So yeah, my intro to Kiss was '82. Uh, um, first time they went to Brazil, of course, it was like four. I couldn't go to the show, but uh, mm-hmm. they made a huge impact. I mean. It was everywhere, magazine, newspaper, TV, they're everywhere there. And uh, I think they packed like two, 300,000 people on, on, on those concerts uh, in, in Brazil. It was massive. It was like this uh, kind of scary, but at the same time, so attractive. You want to listen to that. Uh, but then they, they quickly went to math. I started catching up back with Kiss forever. So forever. So if you guys don't know, soap operas in Brazil, they're huge and they're exported all over the world. There was a really, really well done product. And uh, Forever wasn't a soundtrack of one of them. They had a really uh, kickback there. And, you know, MTV went to Brazil only in 91. So, and then God gave rock and roll to you too. Uh, started having a huge rotation there. And uh, it was kind of nostalgic, right? Showing the, the, the current kiss, but referring back to to the old the old times that was like 92 mm-hmm. then 94 they played monsters of rock in brazil uh, i think I, I think anthrax uh, also there and i went to that show and uh, i was really man i gotta catch up and go back and revisit and most of the material available was the 80s and uh, animal ice was in my first records and unmasked and then i started going to used record stores i bought you know alive destroyer and the whole thing but uh, still, uh, the Unmasked uh, Kiss had, had a huge in- impact. And uh, I follow, I mean, I like Animalize. There's, you know, um, so many great songs there. Uh, Asylum, good songs, but poor production, I think. Uh, but when I bought my Lick It Up and Creatures of the Night, which I still have, I was like, dude, these guys, they play so well. And then going back to the old records, uh, I think my first original Kiss I bought was Hotter Than Hell which sound-wise sucks, has great songs, but sound-wise sucks. It's a terrible record to listen to, in my opinion. I think it's really poorly recorded. It sounds really bad. And then I got the first one. Um, I think Dress to Kill is a really good sounding record. It has really fast, nice songs. It's one of my favorites, Dress to Kill, to be honest. Mm-hmm. And and then I started putting putting the pieces together, but I think my biggest introduction was the Unmasked Era Kiss. I bought my VHS uh, Keys Exposed, which I still have from those days. And they kind of go back and forth, masked and masked. And, but I think Unmasked was my, my, my biggest exposure introduction earlier. And I, and I think, you know, let's put some gasoline in the fire here. I think Uh-oh, hot take, hot take time. 
as musicians, the, the formation with Paul, Gene, um, Bruce, and Eric Carr was the best. As musicians, oh, 100%. Were mu way better. I think uh, Ace Frehley and Peter Chris, uh, they're okay. But, uh, you know, Eric Carr and um, Bruce Kulik, that formation, if they had, if there was a different point in time, maybe this could be like much better, much, much better. Well, I, I, I got to stop you there, Felipe, because people may be driving their cars in the ditches when they're listening to this. The fact, the fact that you just, the fact that you just assassinated two of the founding members in Ace and Peter, and and it's interesting because, again, novice here, you know, when I hear that 1980 album Unmasked, like naturally I would think, oh, that's when they took the, the makeup off, but it's not, right? It was. Mm -hmm. well, what was the guys? And, and Dylan, I'll, I'll ask you what. I mean, clearly it's Unmasked is the name of the album, but they didn't yeah. take the masks off for, what, another two no. albums, right? Yeah, pretty much, yeah. So what was the thought? Because I know, and correct me on, on my history, or this is just homework I did, but Peter at that point was no longer on his way out of the band. Uh, Anton Fig, I think, was doing the drumming. Eric Carr yeah, hadn't come into yeah. the orbit just yet. But You've been doing your homework. Oh, hey, listen, listen. <laughs> I, fake it till you make it, boys. Fake it till you make it. But point being is that, you know, like as it, coming into it, you're like, oh, yeah, I know they took the masks off. I, knew, I know that they quit wearing the paint. But then there's this album, Unmasked, and those two things are not – you know symbiotic yeah. there's a difference one, there yeah one would think that would be the culmination i mean i right. think honestly and i feel like i should know um i feel like part of that was just down to just the design of that particular album cover because like the paparazzi were always trying to get a glimpse of them without makeup which mm -hmm. that was true back in 76 77 back when they were at their peak everyone was just itching to see them without it so i guess they kind of just played along with that but as to the motive as to why they would name it that Probably just tied in with the cover itself and the whole. Mark, Mark, the, Mark, do you got any inside information? I mean, you, 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 well, if, let's put it this way: if you want to know more about why these things happen, I'll give you one good recommendation. See this book here? Okay, <laughs> this book is what you want to get because it has everything about this album in this time period in there. Now. Julian did a great job with doing a well, lot well, of... Tell us, well, tell us what's the name of it and, and, and so forth, or the folks okay. just listening. Well, it's called uh, Mask, Mask Hysteria. Hysteria. Okay. Uh, the World Tour 80 to 81 by Julian Gill, and Julian's the founder, creator of the KISS FAQ podcast and the KISS FAQ message board, uh, and he's the leading authority for KISS stuff. Okay. Right. I mean, if you want to know about Kiss stuff, you you get him on your show, you know, and he, like he has all kinds of stuff that he's collected over the years and articles and stuff. And in, in here, there's a good picture in here. And of course, being that this is like how many pages, 240 pages, it's difficult to kind of remember where in this book this is, sure. but, there, but there is a sketch of the original album cover, which was slightly different than the one that they ended up using for the album cover. There's a little bit more, uh, you know, like scantily clad women on the front of it. No, and stuff. hard to believe. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I know, I know, I know that they for sure thought that that was a bad idea, you know. So, you know, knowing Kiss, but I think that there, that there was a reason that they probably switched it. I and and don't forget too, people were always wondering, well, why did they do such a like a like a makeup, uh, you know, cover like that? Uh, I mean, a cartoon cover. Sorry. Uh, Gene Simmons is a huge cartoon fan. I mean, he's he's collected mm -hmm. comics since he was a young kid. So I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, and I think it, in fact, is Gene's idea to have that kind of comic strip 
idea for the album cover on there. Uh, Makes sense. And you know, and it, this is this was a topic that we talked about on the Kiss FAQ several times about the biggest problem that we had. One of our co-hosts had is that at the bottom it says, "I still think they suck." And people, and he thinks, he goes, mm-hmm. why would you be so stupid to put something like that on your album cover? You're telling people out there that, you know, people think that you suck, you know, talk about diverting people from buying your album. You know what I mean? Like he, he had a big issue with that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I can understand it. It was meant to be like, you know, a, a reference to what the, what the media thought of them throughout the years. Right. But he mm-hmm. made it. A good point because when if you're a new if you're new to Kiss and you go and pick up that album cover and you follow the comic strip thing and you see at the end he said I still think this band sucks. <laughs> well, what would you think? You know, like, right. I'm it's, putting it's this back down. Yeah. Right. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I I think that the album cover was Gene's brainchild, sort of, because I know that Paul has been in one of the books that I have. I think it's maybe maybe it's a. Uh, the Glickman Marx guy there. I forget his name again, but uh, their their business manager helped me out there. Dylan, what was that guy's name again? Uh, oh, yeah. it's it's not Chris Len, is it? That's it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, cool. Chris Len. Um, I know yeah, Chris Len. Customer <laughs> business. What's up? Yeah. In in his book, they were talking about this part, and Paul was said, "I wanted to go down on record that I think this album cover is a very bad idea." He was talking about Unmasked, and that was in his book. He said that. So. Interesting. Well, even so, you have Unmasked, and then there's even a couple more albums before they truly embrace removing the the makeup. What? What, if anything, changed in that period? Because, I mean, Felipe, you kind of kicked it off. That the lineup started to change. That, you know, Peter was out of the band in 80. Uh, mm-hmm. A brief period of Anton Fig, And then Eric Carr comes into the orbit. Eric Carr um, comes in, yeah. Help me out with the Ace piece. I know Ace was was in the band longer than Peter, but probably not by much because mm-hmm. then there was a change yeah. there. So so how, at what point did the lineup start changing post the Unmasked album? Then you got The Elder and, and or what's the other one? Uh, Creatures of the Night. And then, what was Bob Kulik playing before Vinnie Vincent? Um, oh, Bob, Bob Kulik was a studio. was a ghost session player. He was basically yeah, okay. he was what's called a, a ghost session player, where where he would do stuff mm-hmm. and not get credited on the album for mm-hmm. it, yeah. because they wanted to make it. Because he was he's been ghosting for as far back as like Alive Two, all right. Okay. So he was on mm-hmm. he was on the Alive Two studio studio things. All those guitar solos, for the exception of Rocket Ride. That's Bob Kulik. That's not Ace Frehley, huh. right? Mm-hmm. So. Yep. Uh, but, but, you know, go ahead, Felipe, Felipe finish. Uh... No, uh, I was just saying, I think that transition 70s, 80s was a transitional point for so many bands, right? I mean, the, the old school metal, uh, progressive or whatever. Punk was just coming, post-punk. Um, you know, there, there's so much stuff changing. I think bands were trying to adapt to that. And the audience... Well, and you also had, too. not to cut you off, Felipe, but like MTV was coming into Vogue, right? Exactly. So yeah. now you had a new medium to, of distribution mm-hmm. and also promoting your brand, right? Like the famous story mm-hmm. that I always... I think it's the most ironic story of all is uh, who is the guy? Uh, Billy Squire, big star, mm-hmm. big star. Oh, yeah. And, you know, there's that song, uh, uh, Video Killed the Radio Star... It literally was actually the first video played yeah right it was but but years later then you've got that famous billy squire video uh 
Rock Me in the Night, I think it was, or whatever it was, where he's literally <laughs> dancing, <laughs> dancing and prancing. And it literally, like, I didn't kill the guy's career, but like he was a big star for Oh, me. it ruined yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it basically, people are like, what? What's going on here? Right. So, anyway, I, I say that because, you know, with MTV raising the prominence and, and kind of changing the zeitgeist mm-hmm. of popular uh, presentation, yeah. and, and, and you also had a new way to tell the stories of the music through the video yeah. medium. So, you know, like I'm assuming that was probably part of the band's process too, because, mm-hmm. you know, like, I, I don't know, again, it, it, it could go a lot of different ways, but you know, with, with music yeah. changing exactly what you're talking about, now you had this big you know, monster of MTV to also, mm-hmm. you know, contend with and also exactly. get your music across. So sorry. Yeah. Music presentation industry, everything was changed. I think they, they tried to adapt and they took them, maybe 10 years to, to, to figure out exactly what to do because bands that were like driving in the eighties, they, they kind of started them. Right. Think about 82, 83. That's where all the, the, the hair metal bands, they started and they started right up with MTV. They're being tailored by the labels, which is something that doesn't happen nowadays. If you think about, uh, back in the day, you'd sign a contract, the label, like, okay, let's record one, two records, kind of get you, get you on track and then Build you, you're going develop, to you create. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and now it's just, you know, just you, you got to uh, be famous right off the bat. So, and those bands, they were like hatching from like the early 80s. And those guys from the 70s, the, the old guys, right? They, they were they were having a hard time. I mean, look at the early, I mean, the late Led Zeppelin from 76 and on. They, they, they couldn't figure out what to do, right? They were lost. Yeah. Not sure. Like yeah, well, Pink Floyd too. I mean, right? Everybody. Yeah, I mean. You make a good point, Felipe. Like evolving is like super important, especially for any kind of longevity in this this industry, mm-hmm. or any kind of entertainment industries. You have to, I would say, be a chameleon. That's kind of cliche, but you know, you have to change with the time. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, like you said earlier, Dylan, like they they were chasing the trend, like in a lot of respects, and even later when they were kind of dilly and dally and doing their grunge thing. So, um, but like mm-hmm. in terms of the lineup, and, and, and we diverge from that a little bit. Felipe, you had the hot take of you feel that yeah. this lineup with Eric Carr and who was the guitar player? Sorry. And Bruce Cooley. Yeah. Bruce you Cooley. feel that this yeah. was the strongest lineup, stronger yes. than arguably the founding fathers. Um, and, and why would you say that? Is it yes. the musicianship or do you really feel that like in the injection I, I think of musicianship. New, do you feel like the injection of those new members really kind of helped like re-energize, mm-hmm. refocus, whatever yeah. you want to say about Paul and Gene at this point to really yeah. get them to lock in? Yeah, I think musicianship. I mean, if if you look at if you look at the uh, very first early lineup, and correct me guys if I'm wrong, or you know, say what you say, but I mean, there were huge different players, and I mean, Gene Simmons had this mission: I want to be successful, I want to make money, I want to explode. Uh, Paul Stanley was a rocker; he liked to to have fun and play. Uh, Paul and and uh, I mean, sorry, Ace and Peter were totally different, like more jazz and uh, funk kind of kind of stuff and um but i think when the, the 80s lineup came to red they had the same mindset they have the same um you know backgrounds and they were terrific musicians I mean, eric Carr was like terrific drummer i think it was the best kiss drummer ever no no question about it to me oh i see you're shaking your head so feel free to, well, to chime in yeah. honestly i think eric singer could do laps around eric Carr in my opinion oh yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. he's a great drummer you know and mm-hmm. i i mean it's funny i went to there was a there was a kiss convention uh back when they were doing the convention tour and uh they were eric singer was doing a drum thing uh talking about drumming 
and he was getting really annoyed about that actually because people were asking what do you think of tommy uh, uh tommy lee and he's like he's all right I still think I'm better than him, you know. And like, and, and he was, yeah, and he was, he was really annoyed with that because, look, the guy's been around for a long time. He was in Black Sabbath back when they did the Seven Star record. I mean, he was with Lita Ford for a while, and he did a long stint yeah. with Alice Cooper. Yeah. You know, this yes. guy, and he was fantastic with Alice Cooper. I mean, well, if you watch some of those shows with him on there, he's the backbone mm-hmm. of that band. And as as soon as oh, they yeah. brought him in to Kiss. That's when everything changed. Like, let's put it this way: I have a in my my old band. I had a, my drummer. He was huge into Neil Peart. Okay, and so he was like, you know, very snobbish with drummers. He hated Kiss. He he didn't like Peter Chris at all. He thought it was garbage mm-hmm. and stuff like that. But as soon as Eric Singer joined the band and he heard the Revenge album and he saw them like playing live. Yeah. He was converted. He immediately was like a Kiss fan. He's like, okay, this is my guy because he's technically really sound, but he's still a metal drummer. You know what I mean? But mm-hmm. you know that that to me was one of my favorite lines. But ironically, my favorite live lineup of the band was when they were doing the farewell tour in Japan, and this lineup lasted very short. It was mm-hmm. Eric Singer, Paul Stanley, Gene Simmons, and Ace Frehley. Yes. Then, mm-hmm. okay, that was really good because they had a really solid amazing drummer to keep them and hold them together and then ace could be a little sloppy here and there and it wouldn't matter because he could just do mm-hmm. his thing and he kept them together that was the problem back in the day with with peter chris because don't forget you said that you know peter chris is a jazz guy and he was he was very jazzy ace freely was a rocker as well he was into the who Jimi hendrix mm-hmm. stuff like that but the problem was those guys were into the uh, dr- drinking the booze a lot and the poop 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 up the nose a bit too much you know yeah. and so that's when mm-hmm. it started going downhill and that's when paul and gene were like listen we got to do something about these guys you know and they were afraid to because they were they had a formula that was selling you know they were selling mm-hmm. millions of albums of course, and of course they were playing so why would they get rid of them yeah. but they had to try to keep these guys under control and by dynasty peter chris is already not drumming on that album he only d- drummed on one mm-hmm. song uh, Anton Fig did that album as well. And then by the next album, Unmasked, he was gone completely out of the picture from there because they just couldn't handle him anymore. So, so Dylan, I mm-hmm. saw you like shaking your finger in agreement. Do you agree with what Marcus said there about that was probably the penultimate lineup of, of, of during that tour mm-hmm. in, in Japan? I think you said it was. I, I think just in terms as well, like with, uh, with what you were saying, Mark, the ace can be a little sloppier. If you mm-hmm. think about the internal politics of what was going on at that time, bringing Eric into the fold on drums was a godsend. It, yes. it just boosted up the morale. And then Ace just kind of fell off again and Tommy's in and, you know, the rest is, is history. But but no, yeah. that's a solid lineup, you know, between Gene, Paul, Ace, and Eric Singer. I mean, the off the soundboard mm-hmm. show from Tokyo is a living testament. Oh, yeah. oh yeah. You gotta hear it for yourself. Yeah. Oh yeah. So going back, because, so you said Mark that the Revenge album. They so they were still in the Unmasked period, right? Or was it oh, was yeah. that was that the reindoctrin into putting the makeup back on? No, no, it was the last album. Well, technically, uh, Carnival of Souls was the last Carnival album, but Souls, I mean, yeah. most people don't really you know talk about that album too much, but because that yeah. was what 97, the Carnival, yeah, of Souls? yeah, 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 yeah it was the revenge of already, sessions, but really later. Yeah, yeah, well, they they were they did that album just right before they got back into the makeup and did the reunion tour. They were actually mm-hmm. recording it when they were in negotiations 
with those guys to get back into makeup. So yeah. that that's why Eric Singer is kind of pissed off at them too, because right in the middle of doing this album, they were in the background there, you know, <laughs> having meetings on the phone was getting back with these guys. You well, know, yeah. but so, so let's talk about that. Cause that's an interesting dynamic because I, I don't, again, little I know, but the fact that they'd already been playing with Eric Singer and, and I don't know who the guitar player was at that time, but Bruce Kulik. Yeah. So, so those Bruce guys are already Kulik. playing. They've been recording it like that is kiss and it's current indoctrination, but, but exactly what you're talking about is meanwhile, there's not even back room dealing. They're literally in the same room. Like, Hey, we're going to step out. Not even. And, and they're taking these calls, organizing this, this, uh, what was, I mean, mm-hmm. I, I don't blame Eric Singer for being pissed off. <laughs> Because am I in yeah. this band? It's not like they were. I mean, they didn't kick him out of the band. They just did a reunion tour and a little bit beyond, right? But he was still in the band. It's like a weird dynamic, right? Well, from what I understand, and correct me if I'm wrong, Dylan or Felipe, if you guys know about this too. But from what I understand, there was a there was a five year contract that Kiss had with those original guys when they re-signed back for the reunion tour. Yes. Five years committed contract with them, and they yeah. wanted. Bruce and Eric to kind of not fall away and disappear mm-hmm. from them. So I, for what I heard, they were kept for a little while on retainer and they were even given a, a, a bulk amount of cash. I believe they said, and I could be wrong, that they were given a million bucks each wow. to sit out and wait. Pay while not they to play, didn't. sign me up, boys. <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean? So now, don't forget, Gene and Paul and them made $250 million off the reunion tour. So a million bucks is a drop in the hat for those right. guys, you know? Right. So, yeah. yeah. I, I've uh, heard something similar to that, but that also kind of goes as well with um, the fact that I think, I don't know. If, I know Peter definitely received something. I don't know about Ace, but didn't they receive like a portion of like uh, income from like the non-makeup records going into the eighties as well? I, I don't remember hearing anything about that. It's possible, but I don't remember reading anything about about that. I know that what happened where Ace and Peter had the big argument was that during the reunion tour, that Ace was getting slightly more yeah. because he was getting some of the merch mm-hmm. cut because because they were saying that Ace's makeup was more popular with the with the with the, with the audience and that. And, and and the other thing, this mm-hmm. is the most lamest thing I've ever heard, is that they said because Ace appeared on the Guitar Magazine front covers that he deserved to get more money than Peter Chris, which is a very shady reason oh, to give somebody more money. But, yeah. you know, yeah. but he was getting more. By the end of it, he started realizing that Ace was getting slightly more cash than he was. And it was supposed to be, you know, there was never an even split. There was never that. But Paul always said, he goes, listen, don't, why why are you arguing about money when you're going to be a millionaire after this tour? Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's, let's talk Uh, about this. So so, I'm sorry, Felipe, were you going to say something? No, I was just going to compliment. I think 97, 98, there was the the reissue camp, those remaster CDs, right? I think it was the first. Yeah, and they sound great. Uh, I, I bought them when they came out. They sound great. And I went to the Psycho Circles tour. They went to Brazil. Mm-hmm. It just uh, it just sounded like they're playing record. It didn't sound like a great show. So I just come to the point. Of the, the the lineup: Eric Singer and um, Ace Freddie was the best for sure. Yeah, mm-hmm. more lively. So yeah. mm-hmm. so talking about this unmasked era, I'm going to go around each of you. What would you say from that time? Because that was essentially 80s. I'm doing my 83 to early 90s. What did you say, Dylan? Like 90? 90, 95. 95. Okay, so over 95, a decade yeah. without the makeup. In that era, and I'll start with you, Dylan. Well, what would you consider their best album during that time? <sighs> For me, it flip-flops. Um, it's between Lick It Up and Revenge. So the first because, mm-hmm. first album without the makeup, and then Revenge was 
what one of the last one or the last official one without the makeup sort of because they what happened was carnival of souls was recorded 95 96 put it on hold it was bootlegged for a while then they put it out in 97 mm-hmm. to no fanfare so yeah i guess technically if you really want to break it down to its core of revenge was kind of like the last major. the last like the, the cycle of yeah the album yeah. Making. yeah gotcha okay mm-hmm. yeah. mark mark same question what would you say from that period <laughs> do you th- and, and what and what reason is it i mean obviously song preference and all that stuff's fine but you know, do you feel like that that one album or a couple albums stood above the rest. No, this is this is very controversial. You got to understand within the listen. The Felipe community. has already pissed some people off, so Mark, just keep it going. <laughs> so I was asked before, you know, to rank my favorite Kiss albums, and when I said this, people's jaw hit the floor, and they were like, "What the hell? How can?" First of all, I placed Destroyer dead last, which people were like, "How the hell can you rank rank that last?" Oh, somebody just you know, went through the windshield. Sorry, that's Soccer <laughs> Mama and then uh, Pedipsy. But my number two album is my favorite unmasked album and it's always been my favorite because i got big into the whole mtv slash much music era of music at that point and at this point kiss were very hot on making videos okay there was three of them so i think dylan's oh. gonna know where i'm, where I'm going mm-hmm. on with this oh yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Asylum, like asylum is my favorite kiss on mm, out of makeup okay. album i've always loved mm-hmm. tears are falling who wants to be lonely like that whole album you know king of the mountain there's so many mm-hmm. great songs on that oh, album yeah. i've always loved that album from beginning to end i think that album gets a bad rap because of the album cover people always mm-hmm. complain about it saying oh that's a ridiculous yeah, cover yeah. you know why are they using peter's yeah, colors yeah. and ace's colors on uh and eric and and bruce it's like that's nitpicking in my opinion. Yeah, sure. And they did yeah. and that was one of the rare times they did three full-fledged videos for a record at that point. They didn't do yeah. it for Lick It Up. They didn't do it for, you know, Creatures of Night. They didn't do it for for Animalize, you know. I think so Crazy Nights has seven three videos too, right? Crazy I think so. Three. Yeah. 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 So the, the, at that point, but that was very rare that they did that many videos, you know. So they had yeah. great faith in that album, and I have to hand it to Paul Stanley. I never thought of Paul Stanley as a great record producer, but that album, I think he did a good job. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's thanks to him that he was manning the reins, basically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, Felipe. Yeah. Now we've we've caused multiple acts and multiple car pile up <laughs> in these hot takes. I'm gonna come back to you since you started the hot take factory. Yeah. What would you say from this time period of the unmasked is is probably your favorite album? I like the kid up too uh, a lot. Um, I would say revenge sometimes, but I, I agree with uh, with Marcus. I think probably asylum. It's it's really good musically. Uh, some really catchy riffs there, lyrics. Yeah, let's give some credit to Asylum. I think uh, Asylum deserves to be more like recognized. No love, Very for, good, Felipe. No love for Crazy Nights. Guys, what? <laughs> it's, it's, it's not. It's not. It's not bad. You know, it could be like a you know whatever Poison album or something. <laughs> if you want Crazy Nights, put on Bon Jovi. You'll be all right. Yeah, Bon, bon Jovi too. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's, that's the, uh, yeah, that's no, the problem. Asylum deserves. Yeah. Go ahead, Felipe. I was just going to say that that's the problem with Kiss in general is that what what Dylan's kind of alluding to is that the problem with Kiss is that they follow trends, yes, but they're always about a year and a half or two years behind the trends. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's about right. Yeah, that's funny. Well, Well, hell, I mean, Carnival of Souls was 95. I mean, gosh, I mean, yeah, grunge was still kind of lingering, but man, if yeah. they waited around 91, 92, right when Revenge came out, prime time. Exactly, yeah. Nin- yeah. 95 was already like Creed time. Man, that's terrible. 
Well, so to kind of put a bow on this conversation as we're starting to kind of round third, use the baseball analogy, I'm just going to ask the, the question, and this is what started this conversation. And Felipe, since it's your, your recommendation, mm-hmm. I'm going to go to you. What was the better era, the masked era or the unmasked era? Now, when I say masked era, I mean, if you want to lump in when they put the makeup back on, like however you want to do it. But just in terms of your impression as a, as a Kiss fan, you got to pick one. Where do you go? I would say if you like normalize things, put, uh, put it into perspective. I think musicians, I like the, the, the unmasked lineups better. But I think in average, I, I would say the masked ones. Because they put two great records in the second mask. Um, not not talking Psycho Circus, of course, uh, but I think Sonic Boom and Monsters—they're—they're great records. Hell yeah! I, I remember like when Monster came out. I was like, man, shoot, that's a top ten record for me. I was surprised. I mean, I put that, that CD in the car and I drove around. I mean, oh my gosh, it was so good. And I regret not buying the vinyl back then, but bought the CD. <laughs> But uh, it was really surprising. Monster even better. Monster even better. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they were true. I mean, I, I remember Gene promoting this. I said, "Man, this is like uh, all killer, no filler. We're gonna go for it. We're gonna record good albums, and they they deliver it." Yeah. Uh, yeah. So right, if so- they just become a studio band now, that's fine by me. But I think those records really put some weight on the balance towards the mass the mass era for me. All right, Felipe, I got your vote. So Dylan. Where where do you stand on it's an either or question? All right. Do you see these faces here? <laughs> this yeah. is the foundation. This is why people love this band. Of course, it's the makeup era. Now, musicianship wise, I mean, I think the lineup of Gene, Paul, Bruce, and Eric Carr, and I'll even include Eric Singer as well, technically so tight, even more so than the original, but. I do think, and I hate to use the word magic, there was a sort of magic with that original lineup. It's undeniable. But even like to this day, between, you know, Eric Singer and Tommy Fair, band's on fire. So, mm-hmm. mass for me, hands down. Yeah. All right, Mark, I have a feeling I know this answer, but where, where, do, you, where do you land in that question? Well, I mean, much like Dylan, I, I think from a technical performance end of things, being a musician myself, um, I've always loved the unmasked era of Kiss. But, but, <clears throat> um, I, I loved I loved the the actual masked era because I mean, I really got into Kiss uh, when they started going heavy with the conventions in the late '80s, early '90s, <clears throat> and there was the big thing was collecting concert videos bootleg videos and i have a whole library back there of vhs tapes of you know a live one show you know on uh sorry uh hotter than hell stuff and all kinds of different tours and you know recently there was a bunch of shows that were leaked as well so i was like ooh, so i had to go grab those two so when i go into my living room and go on my lazy boy and flip up my chair and sit back and watch i'm watching you know houston 1976 tour you know i'm watching you know kobo hall a live one the three nights which now i finally got in their entirety thanks to mr gooch there thank you for leaking it you know <laughs> so uh and i got a complete show complete with the handing out of the the gold record word, awards yeah, yeah which, which was missing for a long time you know mm-hmm. that part of it so uh but and and it boils back to what dylan said sure 
technically they probably would have played better on let's say the 1995 tour that they did of like south america for example but when you put on night one of kobo hall on the alive mm. one tour and watch it there's something about that performance you know they didn't have the biggest stage they had minimal lights at that point but everything that they had worked with them they had everything down to a fine science when they breathed the fire when they did the blood parts when when paul uh, when did paul did his like, big rap in between the drum solo you know when ace had his smoking guitar parts come up you know all these things connected for a show that had a great flow to it and when it was done you felt like you got run over by a truck watching this because it was like mm -hmm. such a fantastic performance. And, you know, it's not the most overly complicated music to play, but that's what helped it because it wasn't so difficult to play. They could, you know, do add a little bit more pizzazz to their onstage performances. They can do stuff like that where Paul can, you know, put his guitar in between his legs and doing all this stuff and without it becoming too sloppy. You know what I mean? And Peter was really good back in those days. I think Peter doesn't get enough credit for being a great drummer then. I mean, the 100,000 years, when they mm -hmm. did that during those Rich first solo. four albums, the, the solos were fantastic that he did. Yeah. Then. Mm -hmm. Good stuff, oh, yeah. and Mark. I, I'd be remiss if I didn't. I didn't bring this up earlier, but before we we started recording, it's on your handle on your profile here, it says your name is Marcus Almighty hyphen say no all caps. So that was intentional. Say no to Bob E. What what exactly does that mean? Well, as everybody knows, and you probably heard me already mention it a couple of times, I'm a big disliker of Kiss Destroyer. <laughs> I've always thought that that album is the, the biggest letdown in the Kiss catalog. Because I mean, I remember the first time I ever heard that. Remember, I, I heard some of these songs that were on that album before, on let's say Double Platinum. And I heard it also on Alive too. Then I'd go and get this album, put it on, and then they started Detroit Rock City. And when they kick in with the chords, there's this piano. Dan, dan, dan. I'm like, what, what the hell's going on with piano? What's going on here? Is this an Elton John record or something? What's going on here? Bill Evans, ladies and gentlemen, is here. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, and there was a lot of things in that record that I thought that were completely overblown. A God of Thunder is such a great song, but that whole with the kids, all this talking of walkie talkie stuff, I just I got so annoying to me. I couldn't stand it hearing these kids rambling in the background of this song. Oh, and then yeah. you know they do uh you know do you love me and there's like christmas bells going on in the background stuff like that bob mm -hmm. ezrin loves to over embellish songs don't get me wrong i think he did a great job with pink floyd i think he did a fantastic job with alice cooper oh, yes. i have no problem with him producing those guys but bob ezrin needs to stay far yeah. far away from kiss and their I, albums okay I, I, he ruins I, I, them yeah, I, I think the reworked destroy sounds pretty good. I like the reworked better than the original. Oh, the remix version. Yeah, yeah, yeah. the re yeah. The, yeah. But regarding Bob Ezrin, yeah, I, I know it's not the, the subject here, but he made a very famous double record that to me could be an EP easy. <laughs> There's a lot of filler there, a lot of filler, super boring to me. Because mm. because Dylan, I, I'm not trying to start. And, and that's, it, and that's it, called it, the wall. Is, yeah, is, Pink Floyd, The Wall, yeah. Isn't Destroyer your favorite Kiss album, Dylan? No, I, so, all right, full disclaimer, like, when I when I rank catalogs, you know, it's not the biased thing of my favorite is number one. It's a weird way to approach it. My mm -hmm. favorite is Love Gun. Yeah. For me. That was I my mean, first I think record it, of her voice. For, 
For as much as Bob Ezrin kind of flipped that band around and kind of drove them away from just, you know, basic, you know, sex, rock and roll, whatever, on those first three records, made it more cinematic, made it more, I guess, just more universal for someone new to approach the band, which is why a lot of people point to Destroyer as being like the go-to album. I would go as far as to say the debut is a, is a contender for that because it's literally mm-hmm. a greatest hits album. Yes. But in my mind, Eddie Kramer is the perfect Kiss producer. He did Rock and Roll Over too, right? Yep. Yep. He did those, produced yes. obviously Kiss Alive. He did the 73 demo, Alive 2, um, Alive 3 as well. It's a shame he didn't do um, too much with them going into the 80s and 90s. But can, can you imagine, Mark, if Bob Ezrin had his hands on Psycho Circus? Because that was yeah. in, in the reins. <laughs> exactly. I mean, you know, I, I don't understand why they, they, they abandoned using him because I, I have to. My favorite Kiss album of all time is Rock and Roll Over. And that's. And that's, you know, Eddie Kramer's all over that. I mean, he pretty much took them. And it, there's interviews with Kiss when Destroyer was out where they were saying that they panicked when that album came out. They're saying, what do we what do we do here? Because people are already saying that, what is this? Like, this, is, this is so different. That this is not like the Kiss that we know. And that's the same kind of approach that I had when I heard it. I was like, there's too much piano. There's a ballad on there. There's all kinds of stuff that was not very Kiss-like mm-hmm. at the time. And that's yeah. why when they did Rock and Roll Over, you listen to that record. If you play Destroyer and then put Rock and Roll Over on right after it, you're like, whoa, okay. Yeah, this is totally different. like stripped down and very raw and kind of like, what kiss what most people thought kiss was all about you know yeah 100 mm-hmm. good stuff sorry to diverge from topic i meant to bring that up earlier <laughs> this but, is passionate yeah, yeah, yeah. no 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 this is like we had a nice like end of the show going and i'm like no i didn't bring that up so let's open up can of worms so anyway well anyway great topic great conversation i think it was a unanimous decision that the mass era is the preferred era of at least this group of historians yeah. and, and i can't say i disagree but uh but like i was telling dylan before we we uh, started recording i was just watching uh uh some kiss stuff on youtube and uh watching them do the unmasked stuff and they're doing the karate kicks and gene's got some really like you said bob he he just didn't know how to dress himself or didn't have the right stylist because some of the clothes choices were just insane but fe- i feel yeah. like heat i think it was the song i was listening to specifically but anyway Great discussion. I really appreciate you guys joining us. Uh, Mark, first time having you on. I'd love to have you back. Uh, appreciate Absolutely. your input. Thanks for coming on. Dylan, the record spinner, one of the smartest. Is like literally, I, I wish that sometimes I could take your knowledge and just inject <laughs> it straight into my cerebellum. I appreciate that. Thanks for coming on. And then Felipe, again, people, I, I know, it, and I'm not even making this up. After the first roundtable aired, I got so many emails <laughs> and messages like, hold up, Felipe, Jazz Bums Felipe is into Kiss. And, and, and so uh, it opened up a whole new side of your music. Oh, man. So as well, always, we, 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 can, we can do a Sepultura roundtable, okay? Sepultura. <laughs> <laughs> Good stuff. All right, guys. Thanks for joining us. We will probably do one more of these. Obviously, uh, the timing will be interesting because mm-hmm. we're doing this in conjunction with, the, and I'm using air quotes, the final tour. Uh, so we'll, we'll find a good place. Cause I'm, like I've said numerous times, I'm going to my first show here in October. Um, I know Dylan is going to the last uh, Madison Square garden show in December. So look for probably one more of these probably in the fall least or Q4. And, uh, we'll, we'll have another lively conversation then. Thanks for joining us guys. Thank you so much. Chance. Yep. Take care. Thank you guys. And that was another trip around the turntable. Thanks for listening to vinyl community podcasts.